Was Jesus hungry? Was our Lord hungry? Is that why he ate this piece of baked fish in the presence of his disciples? We all get hungry. Some of us might be hungry right now for not eating breakfast. We all need physical food because our earthly bodies are not immortal. If we don't eat for an extended period of time, we die. It's that simple. No great revelation there, I'm sure. But the scriptures make it very clear, my brothers and sisters, that the risen body of Jesus Christ was qualitatively different from ours. Before his resurrection, his body was just like ours. But after his resurrection, it was different. For example, Jesus could walk through walls. Jesus, after his resurrection, could appear in an instant and disappear just as quickly as he did with the two disciples he met on the road to Emmaus. And most importantly, after he rose from the dead, Jesus Christ could not be killed because his body was no longer subject to those forces that lead to death. In other words, he was what we would call immortal. Romans chapter 6 verse 9 puts it this way. We know that Christ, once raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has power over him. So he couldn't possibly have been hungry. Then why the meal? Well, the answer is, very simply, he ate for us. He ate for our benefit. And for the benefit of Peter, James, and John, and all the other disciples who were gathered with them that day, 2,000 years ago, presumably in the upper room. He ate to make it clear to all of us that he had a real, though resurrected, body. He ate to prove to all of us that he was not a ghost or a mirage, which is precisely what some of his apostles were thinking at the time. That's why Jesus said to them here, Why are you troubled? And why do questions arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. He wanted them to touch him and see. Because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see, I have. On that note, Bishop Fulton Sheen once pointed out that there's a certain irony about the resurrection stories in the New Testament. The irony is that the apostles were the biggest skeptics of all. Now, you wouldn't think that, would you? They were supposed to be Jesus' closest friends. They were supposed to be his most faithful and devoted followers. And yet they were the ones who had the most difficulty believing he was alive after Easter Sunday. The Jewish religious leaders, on the other hand, who said they did not believe in Jesus and his teachings, they were the ones who actually stationed guards at the Lord's tomb. As if they thought something extraordinary might happen.
That's amazing. It took a number of appearances by Jesus in a number of different settings to lots of different people before the apostles were convinced that the Lord really did rise from the dead in his human body on Easter Sunday. But once they were convinced, they were willing to go the distance. Once they were convinced that he had really risen from the dead, they were willing to die for what they believed. And most of them did. Most of them died martyrs' deaths. I ask you, what would those apostles think of Christians today who hide their faith under a bushel basket, and many do? What would they think about a Catholic university that covers up a monogram referring to Jesus Christ just because some politicians don't want it on camera? Most of you know what I'm referring to, I'm sure. Last week, President Obama gave a speech on the economy at Georgetown University, supposedly a Catholic school. And the White House staff asked the administration of the school to cover up the monogram in back of the presidential podium in preparation for the talk. The monogram had three letters on it. They're actually Greek letters, but they look like the English letters IHS. You've seen this monogram, this symbol before. Those are the first three letters of Jesus' name in Greek. It's an ancient and very well-known symbol of our Savior. That's what they wanted covered over. Now, can you imagine how Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles would have responded to this request from the White House? Hmm. I can imagine it. Now, I'm sure they would have been very respectful, but they also would have been crystal clear. They would have said something to this effect, with all due respect, sirs, this is a Roman Catholic institution of higher learning. We live our faith. We don't hide it. We love everybody. We respect everyone from the moment of their conception until the moment of their natural death because we believe that they're created in the image and likeness of Almighty God. All we ask is that you treat us in the same way. All we ask is that you respect us and our beliefs. So no, we will not cover over that monogram on the back wall. We will not deny our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in that way. We hope this meets with your approval. If not, there are other state-run schools in the near vicinity where the president can make his speech. And if those are unacceptable to you, there's always the local street corner. It's public property, so you can put anything that you want in back of the presidential podium. No one will stop you. That's how these courageous apostles would have responded. 
As for the spineless and gutless Jesuits who run Georgetown University at the present time, they put up a big black piece of plywood and covered over the symbol. To which I say, Matthew 10, 33. Just in case you don't have your Bibles with you, I'll tell you what Matthew 10, 33 says. Jesus said, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Heavenly Father. We live in a culture right now, my brothers and sisters, in which the cultural elites do not respect us. They do not respect Catholics and most other Christians. But who can blame them? Why should they respect us when we don't have the self-respect to be true to what we say we believe? Why should they respect us when even priests do imitations of Pontius Pilate and wash their hands of Jesus Christ whenever it's inconvenient to be faithful to him? This fiasco at Georgetown, as well as the fiasco at Notre Dame, I won't even get into that, are just the two latest and most noteworthy examples of a trend, a sad trend that's found everywhere among clergy and laity alike. So today, ask yourself this question, and I'll conclude with this, and try to answer this question as honestly as you can. It's an old question that you've probably heard before, but it fits in perfectly with the theme of this homily. If I were on trial for being a Catholic Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? If I were on trial for being a Catholic Christian, would there be enough visible public evidence to convict me? If you're as convinced as the apostles were that Jesus Christ is risen and alive, then there would be plenty of evidence to keep you behind bars for a very long time. And that, my brothers and sisters, in this case at least, is a very good thing.